0: I'm Joe Carter. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Hill, and uh, it's a joy and an honor to be here with you this morning. A few months ago, I was talking to Alan, and he mentioned he wanted to do a sermon series on the uh, Word of God. And I said, "Yes, that's exactly what our church needs to hear about." He then asked if I'd be interested in preaching one of these sermons. I said, "Yes, I'd love to preach about the doctrine of God." And then he said, "What would you think about preaching on the uh, the canon?" Talking about how we got the 66 books of the Bible and how we know what the books are in there, and I said, "Oh, uh, no, no, (laughs) no, no! I I definitely can't do that." And uh, of course, that's not what I tell them. I tell them, "Yeah, of course, I'd love to do that." But uh, inside my head, I was thinking, "I've never even heard a sermon on the canon. Uh, You know, if seasoned preachers don't preach on it, uh, you know, how am I expected to pull it off?" And this is only the second time I've ever preached before. Now, I could give a lecture on the canon. I'm pretty good at doing some research, and uh, you know, I could do a data-driven presentation about the canon. Uh, they'd be interested for a couple of. It'd <laughs> be interesting for a couple of theology nerds, but uh, um, but how can I preach a sermon on the canon that will be of value and interest to all God's people? Is it even important for Christians to know about this stuff? After praying about it, I realized it is important. And I realized looking back over my own life that there were several times over the past three decades when I really needed to hear a sermon about this. Uh, When I was in high school, a friend and I were signed a a book report on John Milton's Paradise Lost, an epic poem about uh, Satan and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, And so we had to go to the library uh, to do some research. And I know some of you youngsters are thinking, why'd you have to go to the library? You didn't have internet access at home? And this was back in the 80s before there was internet. This was back when information was trapped away in books. Uh, so while, while we were doing research, we, uh, we needed to look up some scripture. So my buddy grabbed the uh, Catholic Bible off the, off the shelf. And we were flipping through it, and we noticed there were books like Tobit and Judith. And this section that I later learned was called Apocrypha that I never heard about before. And my friend asked me, since I'd been to vacation Bible school before, he figured out I was an expert. <laughs> why Catholics have all these books in their Bible that we don't have? And I didn't know, I didn't have an answer, and I never took the time to find out. About a decade later, I was stationed on a Marine Air Base in uh, Iwakuni, uh, uh, excuse me, Okinawa, Japan. And uh, again, this was before the internet, so we didn't have a whole lot to do back then. So every weekend I would just go to the base theater and see whatever movie was they were showing that week. And uh, one weekend they were showing this terrible horror flick called Stigmata, uh, and it's about a Catholic priest who discovers the gospel of Philip, or I'm sorry, the gospel of Thomas. In the last shot of the movie, they put up on the screen, the last thing you see on the movie is, the gospel of St. Thomas is believed to be the closest to the actual words of Jesus, but that the Catholic church refused to recognize the document as a gospel. Afterwards, a few of my friends asked me, if this was the closest thing to Jesus, why did the church not allow it in the Bible? And again, I had no answer for them. I didn't know, and I didn't take the time to find out. Well, about five years after that, along comes Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. It's a fictional story that uses a text called the Gospel of Philip. And, and in the Gospel of Philip claims that Jesus didn't die and he wasn't resurrected. Instead, he got married to Mary Magdalene and he had a bunch of children and a bunch of children that opposed the church. And once again, friends ask me, um, why if the church included the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why did it include the Gospel of Thomas? And once again, I didn't know how to respond. Eventually, I did find out all these answers to all these questions, but by not being prepared when it mattered, a lot of people I encountered walked away a lot more skeptical of the Bible. And the problem was that they were gonna trade in the the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for the Gospels of Philip and Thomas. The problem was that they were left with the impression that the books in the Bible were simply chosen by some arbitrary process, probably a political process, And if fallible men selected the books in our Bible, how do we know they got the right books? If we reject the books of Tobit and Judith, why can't we reject the letters of Paul or the writings of John? It's because of questions like that that I want us to briefly consider how we know these are the books that are the ones God gave us and why that matters. But before that, let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, open our eyes and hearts that we might clearly hear your word this morning. Help us to gain a better understanding of how you gave us the Bible so that we might leave here today with an even greater confidence in your holy word. In your holy word, holy name we pray. Amen. Please turn your Bibles or your Bible apps to uh, the book of John, chapter 10. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and would like one, please stop by the connect table this morning. We'll give you one. We'd love to give you one free from Grace Hill. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about the good shepherd and his sheep. And Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, "Verily, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. There are a few more phrases I want to point out from this chapter. Verse 8. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there should be one flock and one shepherd. In verse 25 through 27, the works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now when Jesus repeats something this many times, it's something we should sit up and take notice. And what he's saying here is three things that we should be paying attention to. Number one, that his followers know that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, that they recognize his voice, and that they listen to him and imply that they will do his will. So to better understand this metaphor, let's consider for a moment uh, how an actual sheep recognizes the voice of their shepherd. Uh, When I was in high school, I was a freshman in high school, I was part of of Future Farmers of America. Um, And for my class project, I raised a sheep. Now, I'm no expert on these animals. I was only a one sheep shepherd. But I I can attest that they do recognize their master's voice. They know uh, they can recognize a human's voice. Otherwise, they're dumb as a fence post. But when their master calls them, they know to come running because they know it's time to be fed. And how do they know? Well, I don't understand all the particulars, but I do know that God designed the process. From the distinct vocal cords of humans to the auditory system of the animal to the limited sheep brains, God designed them all all of those things, so that they would recognize a particular human voice, the voice of their master. In the same way, God designed us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, and have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he has called us, has shaped our belief-forming apparatus, what philosophers call noetic equipment, to recognize the distinct voice of Jesus. So what does all this have to do with the canon? Well, it has everything to do with it. It tells us not only how we come to know the books we consider the Word of God are the Word of God, but it also tells us how we can have assurance in this knowledge. So let's unpack our ability to recognize Jesus' voice formed, how Jesus' voice formed the canon. And we need to begin by uh, laying down a foundational principle that will undergird three uh, criteria I'm going to talk about in just a moment. For the canon to be a collection of Scripture, it must be what's called self-authenticating, Scripture must establish its authority based solely on itself. Now, this may seem like an odd standard, but it's used in courts of law all the time. According to the law of evidence in in the United States, there are certain documents that are considered self-authenticating documents, uh, things like newspaper articles or official government documents. This means they can be admitted into evidence without, without any other documents proving what they are. What they are, is recognized, I mean, what shows in them shows what they appear to be. Similarly, when we say the canon is self-authenticating, we're saying that the canon itself provides the necessary direction and guidance about how it is to be authenticated. Now, this this may sound like circular reasoning. Uh, Circular reasoning is when, as a typological fallacy, in which a person begins with what they're trying to end with. Circular reasoning would be like me saying, Uh, you can trust that I'm telling the truth because I'm telling you the truth. That's circular reasoning. When a person uses circular reasoning, we have no reason to assume that they're true because what they're ending with, their conclusion, is merely restating the, the original claim. But imagine if I hold up a document and say, this letter was written by Alan McCullough because it says it was written by Alan McCullough. Well, that's not circular reasoning. I may be wrong about it being written by Alan. It could be a forgery or it could be a prank. But if I says Alan wrote it, and I know Alan's handwriting, and I know his particular style, then I have what philosophers call warrant for a justified true belief. I'm justified in believing that this document really is from Alan. Of course, this standard of proof is only likely to convince people who already are familiar with Alan and know his voice and can recognize it. Um, we identify the works written in the Holy Spirit much the same way by hearing in them the voice of Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, his sheep hear his voice, but we're his sheep too. So Jesus can't simply be talking about those who audibly heard his voice at the time of his earthly ministry. And in fact, he makes it clear that the voice his sheep hear comes through scripture that was written down. During Jesus' earthly ministry, what constituted scripture was what we now consider the Old Testament. Of course, back then, they didn't have the New Testament yet, so they didn't call it the Old Testament. And like all first-century Jews, Jesus divided um, the Scripture up into three sections, three collections, um, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Law constitutes the, the work of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, the Prophets included not only the things we consider prophets, like the Isaiah and Jeremiah, it also included, included some of the narrative works, such as uh, Judges and First and 2 Samuel. And the Psalms included not just the Psalms, what we consider the Psalms, it included all the wisdom literature, such as Job and Proverbs also. Now, after his resurrection, Jesus tells his followers, his sheep, that all the Old Testament is about him. All the Psalms, all the law, all the prophets, they're all about him. In Luke 24 44, he adds, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Jesus also says in John 5, 39, again referring to the books of the Old Testament, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Now this gives us a shortcut for the self-authenticating, self-authenticating process for about half the canon. Over half the books of the Bible, 39 out of 66, are included in the New Old Testament. And we have Jesus confirming that all these books are all about him. He's put a stamp of authenticity on them. When we read these books, we hear the Holy Spirit testifying about Jesus. When we read these books, we hear the voice, we, his sheep, hear the voice of Jesus. When it comes to the New Testament, though, we don't have such a shortcut. So, how then do we recognize Jesus' voice? In the books that have become known as the New Testament. Now, there are three ways that we know these books are from God. Number one, they have apostolic origins. Number two, they were received by the corporate church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And number three, they bear divine qualities. Uh, We're going to briefly consider each of these and kind of show how they all lead to a self-authenticating canon of Scripture. The first criteria we're going to consider is apostolic origins. That is, the books of the New Testament were written by or under the direction of an apostle. Now, an apostle is a messenger who is commissioned to carry out instructions by his commissioning agent. And the most important apostle of all, of course, was Jesus. As Hebrew 3.1 tells us, Jesus is our apostle and our high priest. He was sent to earth and commissioned with carrying out the instructions Of the commissioning agent, his heavenly father. All the other apostles were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus and were sent by him to make disciples of all nations. We also find in John 16 that Jesus promised his apostles that they would be getting more instructions from him, hearing his voice even after the resurrection, after his ascension to heaven. Jesus told them, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what it is, what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Holy Spirit Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. All of the books of the New Testament were either directly written by an apostle, such as the letters of Paul, or were written directly under this, uh, or written, excuse me, directly written by an associate apostle, such as Luke or Mark, who were directly guided by an apostle. So the apostolic covering covers all the books of the New Testament. Unfortunately, we don't have time to kind of explain in depth, uh, provide a lot of evidence for this. But uh, one of the key things I want you to take away from today is know that all the books of the New Testament um, were written within 70 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's one of the things that separate the New Testament writings from some of the fake works, such as the so-called Gospel of Thomas or Gospel of Philip. All of those were written about 300 years after Jesus' death. Um, it's also what separates the other books from the Apocrypha. Um, they either weren't written by an apostle or they wouldn't include it in the original Hebrew scripture, so they don't have Jesus' stamp of authenticity on them. Now, some of the books of the Apocrypha may be useful for literary um, reasons or they may be good for other reasons, but they're not... Um, They don't consider the word of God. So now we see that Jesus endorsed the Old Testament by saying it was all about him, and he authorized the New Testament by telling the apostles they would hear more from him. So that's our first standard. The second criterion of the self authenticating canon is corporate reception. If you ask who chose what books made made it into the New Testament or or what books made it into the New Testament and why, most Christians would say that the church selected them. And that's partially correct, but it can be a bit misleading. Uh, The church had a fundamental role in recognizing Scripture, for it is the church that hears and recognizes the voice of Christ. It is also the church as the receiving body who collected the books of apostolic origins and and codified them in what's uh, now called the canon. But there are two ways that this can mislead us, one of them external and one of them internal. And the first idea, which is held by Roman Catholics, is that the church itself had the authority to decide which books were canonical. They claimed that the Holy Spirit infallibly guided the bishops, guided them in a way in which they couldn't be wrong in deciding which books are scripture. They believed the Catholic Church was infallibly guided to choose the correct books that were to be in the canon of scripture. Now this puts the Catholic Church and its head bishop, the Pope, on the same level of authority as eternal and changing word of God. And indeed, the Catholic Church teaches the doctrine of papal infallibility. says that the pope is preserved from possibility of error when when he teaches doctrine concerning the faith or morals to be held by the whole church. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into all the reasons why this is wrong, but there's plenty of examples throughout history. Uh, And even most modern Catholics have a hard time today believing that their church and their pope is infallible. In contrast, though, Protestants believe in the doctrine of sola scriptura, that is, that all Christian doctrine must be contained in texts that have been received as Scripture. Tradition is important, of course, and the church has a role in recognizing what books were by God, but the ultimate authority over the church and the individual is the Word of God spoken by God through Scripture. But if the Bible itself is the ultimate authority over the, the church and the individual Christian, then who or what decided? Uh, what was to be included in scripture? And the answer is God did. Only God has the authority to determine which books were written by him. As Hebrews 6.16 says, people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. That is why some people say, well, I swear on the Bible or I swear to God, though they should never say that, when they want to show that they're serious. It adds some weight to it. But since there's no authority higher than God, when God makes a promise and when he wants to swear on something, he has to swear on himself, as Hebrews 6.13 tells us. That's the external error about the canon, and it's commonly made by Catholics. The internal error is one that's more commonly made by Protestants. It's what I call the, the spirit in me fallacy. It's the idea that we as individuals, personally guided by the Holy Spirit, and completely separate from the church or the community of believers can make the determination for ourselves what is and is not the word of God. It's the idea that for thousands of years, millions of believers have been duped. It's the idea that we all Christians thought they were hearing Jesus voice in the books of the old and new Testament. All of them, all of us were wrong and misguided. Now for an individual to think they know better The centuries of saints and scholars is rather astounding, but it's also very very American. In the 1500s, a French Catholic philosopher named Rene Descartes was looking for an unshakable foundation for knowledge. He was was uncomfortable with uncertainty, so he decided to use that uncertainty to find certainty. He thought he could do this by doubting everything that is possible to doubt. And he, he, he realized, you can doubt that God exists. You can even doubt the world exists. But one thing you can doubt is that you exist. Because for you to be able to doubt, you have to exist. And says, doubting is a form of thinking. He came up with this famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. Based on this as a foundation, Descartes thought he could figure out everything else out of ourselves using our own reasoning. Earlier, I mentioned John Milton's poem Paradise Lost and how its main characters are Adam and Satan. And when I think about Descartes' claim, I'm reminded of a a quote by literary critic Stanley Fish, who said about the poem uh, how Adam and Satan use reason in very different ways. Adam reasons, Since I don't remember how I got here, someone must have made me. And Satan reasons, Since I don't know how I got here, I must have made myself. Now, we don't think we literally make ourselves, at least not our physical bodies. But we Americans think we're self made. We, we talk about we can make up our own mind. We can decide for ourselves what is true and what is, what is false. We don't need anything outside of ourselves. We have everything we need. Almost 300 years after Descartes, another Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville traveled across America and he wrote down his observations. He said that in no other country was Descartes less studied but more applied. In America, said de Tocqueville, everyone shuts himself up in his own breast and affects from that point to judge the world. Unfortunately, not much has changed since the 1800s. If you start with the very American conception that you are capable of judging the world on your own, and you add to that the conviction that your own independent judgment is guided by God, then you become your own infallible Pope. You then have the self-given authority to toss out the books of the Bible that don't meet your standard. And especially these books conflict with the modern cultural values. So if you read Paul, and he's speaking out about a particular sin, and you say to yourself, well, Jesus wouldn't really be against that sin, you could throw out Paul. If you're reading the books of Moses, and he's speaking out against a particular sin, And you say to yourself, well, I can't really see how Jesus would be against that. We can throw out the books of Moses. Now, I'm not talking that there can be times when we kind of look at what Jesus says, what Moses says, or Jesus Paul says, and we're not sure how they fit together. But once we start thinking the conflict is irresolvable, then it's not long before the voice of Jesus starts to sound very much like a middle-class 21st century American. Now, is it possible that the corporate church has always been wrong about what books constitute the canon? Sure, it's possible. What is more probable? Is it more likely that the Holy Spirit allowed his hand-chosen apostles and hundreds of millions of Christians from simple believers, to sophisticated scholars, to be deceived for over 2,000 years? Or is it more likely that a lot of modern Christians are simply deceiving themselves? My own conviction is that while the church is not infallible, we can have assurance that the Spirit has not allowed us to be deceived when we claim to hear Jesus' voice in the canon of Scripture. Corporate reception is not infallible, but it is reliable. The corporate reception of canon also allows us to definitely know when we're encountering the Word of God. Other claims to revelation, such as impressions and dreams, and so-called other scriptures, like the Book of Mormon, don't carry the same authority because they haven't been shared with the whole church. So to summarize this criterion of corporate reception, we can, show, we can say that the canon shows that God speaks publicly to all, rather than secretly to some. And that leads us to the third and final criterion of self-authentication. That each book of the canon must bear divine qualities. If the Holy Spirit inspired the work, then there will be detectable evidence, a measure of beauty, harmony, and excellence that transcends the ordinary works of humans. We should see something that is similar to what we see in nature. As Psalms 19:1 set notes: the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. As the Scottish theologian John Murray says, if the heavens declare the glory of God, and therefore bear divine witness to their creator. The scripture as God's handiwork must also bear imprints of its authorship. The beauty and majesty of these books in the Bible is so great that even some of those people who aren't filled with the Holy Spirit can recognize them. About a decade ago, a famous transgender art critic and a self-avowed atheist named Camille Paglia had this to say about the Bible. Most people who are secular humanists have the idea that they are doing fine. We're doing fine, and our only enemy is the Bible-based far-right. The reason why the real threat is the far-right is that they have the Bible, and the Bible is a masterpiece. The Bible is one of the greatest works produced in the world. The people who, have, who all they have is the Bible actually are set for, for life. Not only do they have a spiritual vision given to them, but artistic fulfillment. They don't even recognize just the pleasure of dealing with epic poetry and drama. Everything is in the Bible. End quote. Paglia is more right than she knows. The Bible is indeed a spiritual and aesthetic masterpiece. And for those of us who have nothing else but the Bible, we're set for life. But she's also right that we don't recognize what we have. We often don't see the divine qualities in the books because we don't even bother to read the books. And even when we do, we often don't ponder how that all fits together. If we don't engage the full canon of scripture, then it becomes easy to see the Bible as just a a list of rules and regulations that are kind of mixed in with a bunch of weird literary genres. When we do engage the whole canon though, we begin to see it as a dramatic story or a play or what theologian Kevin Van Hooser calls a theodrama. The canon is a theodrama with God as the playwright. And this is kind of a brief overview of what the story is. The story of the Bible begins with a bang, a big bang, literally, and proceeds with an epic tale of good and evil, of love and death, of beauty and grace. Then it has some lighter, more introspective parts, some parts about practical wisdom, and some sections about prophecy that we really don't understand too often. But when you come back from the play's intermission, the story hits its pinnacle. An incredible... Credible incredible story of a heroic prince that's told in four, four parts from four different perspectives. The climax comes with the death of our hero and then an unexpected twist as he's resurrected and ascends to an unseen throne from which it will rule the universe. But the story doesn't stop. From there, it simply downshifts to a series of variations on a theme, a theme about good news. It concludes with a vision that is frightening and magnificent, a vision that gives us a glimpse into the future of all creation. But then we we see something unusual about this particular play. We find out that this theodrama is still ongoing and we're asked to play an important role. We're called to prepare ourselves by repenting of our sins, believing that Jesus is Lord and that the Father has raised him from the dead, and by confessing that Jesus is the supreme authority over all that exists. Once we do that, once we repent, believe, and confess, we take a new place on the stage. We're no longer just part of the audience. We're no longer just spectators. We're given roles to play in this historical and eternal field drama. The playwright even indwells within us to help us better hear his voice so we can better follow his lead and heed his instructions. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, That's the situation you're in right now. You've been given the script of the story so far. You can take up this text, which we call the Bible. You can look across time and space and history, and you can see how God interacted with some of the main characters in his story. And through it all, on every page, you can hear the voice of Jesus. This is why the canon matters for believers. I want you to leave here today knowing that there are solid reasons for having confidence that the right books were included in this collection we call the Bible. But more importantly, I want you to leave here reflecting on what it means that all these books, every single one, was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and was included in the canon because it's essential to the theodrama you are living right now. These books, every one, were written to you These books, every one, were written for you. These books, every one, were written so that you could more clearly see your place in God's unfolding story. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we come before you today to thank you for inspiring the books of the canon we thank you for testifying to Jesus and all of scripture. We thank you for indwelling within us and illuminating your holy word. We ask that you help us to better see how our present condition fits in your everlasting story. Help us to see how we were not only loved into existence, but are loved enough to get to spend eternity in your presence. Help us, Lord, as we go throughout the rest of our day, the rest of our week, to constantly be remembering, Lord, all that you've done for us, all that you've given us, all that was acquired, to simply bring your word to us, all the men and women who died to make sure it was translated and carried on throughout the history. Under your guidance, under your hand, Lord, so that we could have your holy word. Thank you, Lord, for all you've given us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.